Hello and welcome to episode 86 of Tea or Books. I'm Rachel. I'm Simon. Today we are going to be discussing sympathy versus empathy, which Simon is has a has an idea <laughs> about, so I'll let him explain in a moment. Um, and then in the second part of the podcast, we're going to be comparing two books, um, The Child that, book built, that Books Built by Francis Spufford, and a selection of essays um, entitled When I Was a Child, I Read Books. So that's just a title of one of the essays by Marilyn Robinson. Um, but first of all, Simon, how are you? What's going on? What are you reading? Um, yeah, all right. I had my, my brother come to stay the weekend, which is lovely. Oh, lovely. We're in a bubble together. Brothers um, reunited. So it's only, it's only the second time I've seen him since lockdown, so we haven't we haven't made the most of our bubble, perhaps. But it has been lovely. And in fact, now you can have anyone to come stay, can't you? You can. Uh, um, so we've had only only once did we take it <laughs> actually do something new because of the bubble. But um, it does mean we'll be able to go and see our parents as well, because we'll only be two, we're technically one household um, because of this well, bubble, despite being very far away. So we can meet up with our parents being the other household. Lovely. Yes, stay within the letter of the law. Um, although <laughs> now everything is guidance, isn't it? So who knows? Well, yes, you can do as you like, really. Yeah. And it's going to yeah. lick a lamppost. Um, I am currently reading The Game by A.S. Byatt. Oh. Um, I've read... We, well, we did Possession on here, didn't we? I read Possession a long time ago and really liked it. And that was back in the days... So I was still at school and there weren't that many authors that I... Had thought, oh, I really like this. So I bought a few more books by us, but I didn't, didn't read any of them. Um, <laughs> I did read some short stories, actually, the Matisse stories. Uh, but I've not read another novel of hers. And I read Possession 17 years ago, I guess. And I probably bought this book 16 years ago. Now it's moment has come. And it's about... Is it good? Yeah, I'm enjoying it so far. It's about... Uh, two sisters, sort of feuding sisters. Feuding sisters seem to pop up quite a lot in AS by it, as far as I can tell from <laughs> reading synopsis, interestingly. <laughs> one of them's a, uh, an Oxford professor, one of them is a novelist. Um, there are dark secrets in their past and with their neighbour called Simon. Oh. Uh, I've not really worked out what the game is. They have they have played the game back at their childhood home, which is sort of you know, soldiers on a big map sort of thing. I'm assuming there's more to it than that. <laughs> and it's probably <laughs> going to get darker. Um, at least the blurb tells me it gets quite dark. It's not quite dark yet. Have you read that one? No. Do you know what? I've never read any of her books other than Possession. And then I read the children's book when it came out several that, yes. years ago You now. didn't like it, did you? And I hated it. Yeah. Um, I don't know whether I would... I would like it more on a second reading, but I don't think so. I, I'm I'm pretty sure the reviews were were quite damning at the time, so I don't think my opinion was out. Well, it was an outlier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I'm doing something where I'm trying to read one book from each shelf around my bedroom. So it's sort of inspired by you and your alphabetical reading, oh. but rather than reading everything because <laughs> I wouldn't get beyond the A's this year with my unread books. I'm just going. This is just my books. My bookshelves in my bedroom, which are all, all my paperbacks. It's going one at a time, thinking, oh, what's, what would I like to read from this shelf? And I'm trying to do authors I've not read before, but obviously have failed on that with A.S. Byatt. Um, but yeah. And if the book is something you don't enjoy, are you prepared to, to give it away? Or uh, it Yeah, why not? Let's say that, yes. Um, no, I, I am. Um, so far, I've only, I'm only on the third shelf, I think. And they've, all, they've been good ones so far. 
I can't remember. The first one was Adrian Allington's The Vanishing Celebrities that I really liked. Um, I can't remember if I spoke about that here. It's a murder mystery, but it's sort of a spoof murder mystery. I mean, it's one of the things where there is a mystery to it, but all the characters are quite spoofed and they're very, like one of them is very openly based on Dorothy L. Sayers. Um, there's another one who turns up who's very obviously based on Agatha Christie and they've got their mm-hmm. feud going on, which I enjoy. That, and then there's my favourite character, I think, who may or may not be based on someone who was famous in the world of 1930s tennis, not not my um, area of expertise, <laughs> uh, is a tennis pro. But every time anyone asks her, she says, oh, what I'd really like to do is get married and have children. I'm just a plain honest girl. <laughs> so response to everything. The, um, the only tennis player I know from vaguely that period is Helen Wills, because the cat was named after her in The Provincial Lady, but I don't think it's based on her. Oh. Well. Yeah, how about you? What are you reading? Um, well, I'm just over halfway through Mr. Norris um, Changes Trains by Christopher uh, Isherwood because I've, I've made it to I in the alphabet. <laughs> Exciting time. Um, and I'm enjoying it very much. It's um, I'm enjoying it more than Goodbye to Berlin, actually, which I probably should have read after this one. I didn't realise that I should have read them in a particular order. But um, this is, yeah, it's it's set in Berlin in the very early 1930s and it's watching the kind of the rise of the Nazis and it's um it should be a very kind of tense and stressful novel if you think about the the the, the stuff going on in the background but the characters are just so funny it rem- it reminds me a lot of an Evelyn War novel actually it's got a bit of decline and fall about it mm. um and yeah the, i'm really finding it very funny the there's the character of mr norris is so well drawn and apparently was based on a real person um and just some of the things he says i'm just giggling away on the sofa <laughs> so yeah, i'm enjoying that a lot um and yeah so that's that's good to be to be getting through some classics as well that i've had knocking around for a while um, and I've been meaning to read, but I'm a bit scared because I've got a lot of Henry James coming Oof. up. <laughs> I know it's going to be a tough few weeks. I think I read Mr. Norris during his trains a while ago, um, which is, was absolutely not what I expect. I expected to be. It's a lot sort of not darker, but sort of I don't know, racier than I was expecting. Yeah. Um, Berlin sex clubs and that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and I thought it'd just be a gentle sort of witty comedy about someone going around I know, provincial railway stations or something. But um, <laughs> I read it on a train, almost on a train, and to Somerset. And when I got up to get off the train, I saw that the person behind me was also reading Mr. Norris Changes Trains. Oh, what are the chances? And if I hadn't been getting off the train, I'd have raised it with her. <laughs> you could have made a friend. I know. Uh, um, are there any other issue words in your eyes? No, I've I just had that in Goodbye to Berlin, um, okay. and I've already read Goodbye to Berlin. So, um, I've uh, I've I'm making a list as I go of of novelists that I've enjoyed more than I expected, and I shall be looking out for books by them once I start properly book shopping again. I have ventured into Oxfam books this week, but it wasn't Ooh. a very pleasant experience. No. Um, so I won't be going back anytime soon, largely because the person in there had a far more I've got a very cavalier attitude towards life in general, so um, I don't mind about these sorts of things. But the person running the shop was, you know, su- such a army drill sergeant that I just thought, you know what, I don't actually want to stay in here because you're making everybody sort of screaming at everyone the second they walk in the door. It's a bit stressful. <laughs> it, felt like, it felt like you couldn't sort of browse and 
you weren't allowed to touch anything. But I was like, it's an Oxfam bookshop, so everything's priced differently. I don't know how much it costs. Um, or also, I don't, I can't tell what condition it's in unless I actually pick it up. Um, and so I was just a bit like, whoa, I need to get out of here. Um, and then yeah. I felt really sad afterwards because I thought this is the one thing that I, you know, I'm not a big shopper for clothes or things like that. I love to shop for books, though, and as you know, as you know, and mm-hmm. all the same. And part of the joy is just sort of wandering and browsing. And sometimes you won't even buy anything, but it's just the fun of being in there. And that really upset me. I thought, you know, that's another thing that's been taken from me. Yeah, I think it's going to be a while before I feel comfortable doing that again yeah. properly. Um, yeah, I read um, Pray to Violet last year, a couple of years ago. I read, and I really like that one. So if you see that one, and it's about a film director. It's very funny. Oh. Um, yeah. Well, when when I can go to Oxfam Bookshop without getting <laughs> shouted at again, then I shall. <laughs> All fingers crossed. Um, yeah. So yes, empathy versus sympathy. <laughs> mm. And what I mean by this, basically is do we want to feel empathetic with characters, i.e. identify with them, or do we just want to feel sympathetic for, for characters, think that's not really me in this book, but I just want to, but I still care about them. Does that make sense? Okay, yes, no, I think I'm following you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, because I think people often use the words vaguely interchangeably when they're talking about books. Um, I found, yes. and I think they're absolutely not interchangeable for me, at least. Um, well, I mean, no, I mean the words mean completely different things. I'm constantly telling my students this. Yes, they drive me insane. Yeah, and I remember actually one of my um, intuits at Oxford. When this really just drops that in, um, one of my at Oxford, I was asked about sense of sensibility and whether or not I felt sympathy for Marianne. Marianne, 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 Marianne. Thank you. Hand of mind blank, and I said. I did not feel sympathy for... Sorry, did I feel empathy for her? I said, no, I felt sympathy for her. And they laughed, and I'm not sure why, because it wasn't meant to be funny. But um, but I think it's a good case in point uh, for, as an example of a character for whom I feel almost no empathy, but a great deal of sympathy. Um, whereas I think there are some people, perhaps, who tend to look for authors that they... Sorry, characters that they can feel, feel empathetic with. And I can't really think of... I've never, I don't think I've ever read a book and thought, all oh, these characters really like me. I mean, there's things where I think they have qualities that I respond to, but I, I've never really come across someone I think is like a fictional version of me. I don't know oh, really? You, have you? Oh, I always think that I am basically Emma. In, oh, okay. Uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> just not necessarily in the physical description or financial sure. circumstances, but um, <laughs> in terms of personality, yeah, I think I'm very much like her. Interesting. Mm. Um, and so, besides not really understanding what I was, why I want to do this topic, do you have any initial <laughs> initial thoughts about it? Um, I find I don't find it difficult to read books where I don't empathise or sympathise with the characters. I think, for me, I find it difficult when I can't empathise with the with the author. Okay. If I don't... You know, like, the, the general kind of world of the book and the moral compass of, mm. of the... Not necessarily of the characters, but, you know, there's a moral compass of the story where the novel where the novel's going and where there's always an implied viewpoint or an implied behavior in, in the novel that's considered to be the correct one and and you know yeah, yeah. like and you know the alternative and 
for me, I find it very difficult to read a book where I can tell that I don't like the novelist's t- slant on the world and I don't like their their moral compass. And if I'm reading and that's becoming the case, regardless of how much the characters might be funny or whatever, I just think I don't like the person reading writing this book, so I can't read it anymore. Um, which, is, yeah, yeah. which doesn't happen to me very often. Um, That's why I've never but, really got on with Evelyn War, I think, for that, for that reason. Oh, right, okay, yeah, yeah. no, so I, I don't mind that. Um, but it's like, so for example, I've always found Ian McEwan's books to be quite mean-minded, if you see what I mean. And mm. I don't, so that's why I, I don't really get along with him. It doesn't mean I can't sympathise with his characters, as I can, um, but with with the actual spirit of the author, no, I can't. So that's that bothers me. But I don't necessarily look to pick up a book where I feel like, oh, yes, I really want to feel a connection to, to the characters. But often I do. I think um, there are lots of, parts of say for example um the diary of a provincial lady i love so much because i totally empathize with so many of the things that she's thinking and feeling and perhaps it's you know it's a woman thing maybe you don't you can't do the same but um some of the things that she says and that she you know the feelings that she expresses i'm just like yes i've had that exact thought i've had that exact experience um and it's the same with Jane Austen. I just find all of her characters incredibly empathetic. Um, and I feel like that's why she's such a wonderful novelist, because her characters are so true to life and they're so true to, to many of my experiences. And I think that's why, you know, I have particular authors that I go back to again and again, because they've managed to create characters that embody me in a way on my experience of life. And I, and I enjoy seeing elements of myself and my personality and my view on the world reflected in someone else and often seeing how they cope with the situation will give me an alternative view of how I could have managed it better do you see what I mean does that make sense yeah that's nice that having that happens yes I think I I find that in terms of empathy quite seldom but sometimes when I read books that are well written about Christian faith that's um because we've talked before is relatively seldom done in modern fiction and yes. particularly seldom done uh, sympathetically um this is why you know one of the things i love most about the marilyn robinson gilead trilogy mm. uh, soon to be crid- critrology um you know <laughs> <laughs> uh is that it's uh, a really a, a portrayal of faith that i can find very empathetic and sympathetic yes. um similarly i've just been reading some more trollope i just finished dr thorne recently um, that's probably not the best example in the series, but reading about um, sort of faith and moral issues in the Warden and Barchester Towers, um, I find that you know, a very... And in fact, The Vicar of Wakefield by Oliver Goldsmith found, found um, all of those quite empathetic, in the, um, probably just in that angle, because I don't think I'm particularly like Septimus Harding or John Ames outside of their faith, <laughs> um, <laughs> would that I were. But uh, yeah, generally, I, I mean... I. I don't mind if if an author, if a character isn't empathetic or sympathetic unless I feel like you're expected to sympathise with them. Uh, I mean, one of the things reasons I can't stand Catherine the Rye is that I feel zero empathy or sympathy for Holden Caulfield. A bit of sympathy for him oh. having lost his brother, I guess. But, um, but I think he's one of those characters who is notoriously met, meant to be and has been found to be very empathetic by a lot of people who see themselves in him. Um, mm. I don't think 
either of us probably find us, see ourselves in him particularly but you're you're i remember you saying when we talked about it you were rather more sympathetic to him than i was oh yes very much so yeah. i mean that book always just um i think perhaps because i teach i teach boys that age and i know how emotionally vulnerable they are and it just breaks my heart every time and i think of you know kids i've taught like that and you're just gonna gather gather him up and sort him out you know give him a big cuddle <laughs> well i have to give him a slap but <laughs> 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 not really don't advocate violence but uh, i can't stand him but uh, whereas yeah there's lots of characters who I feel sympathy for without feeling um, any empathy uh, I mean mo- yeah I think probably most of the people in Austin um, I feel a great deal of sympathy for all the heroines and I don't see myself in them particularly apart from maybe I think perhaps in Eleanor um, yes I can see you as an Eleanor actually yes yes which is one of the things I think is so great about sense sensibility is it um, I found it very easy to empathise with one and sympathise with the other simultaneously, which is when you've got characters who are so different and who um, whose different characters rub off again. Obviously, they love each other, but the way that Marianne behaves is so distressing to Eleanor, and yet... Oh, she's yeah. so annoying. And yeah, I still sympathise with her um, until the end when she makes a horrible decision. But anyway... <laughs> <laughs> I don't sympathise or empathise with Marianne at all. She just thoroughly annoys me. I sympathise heavily with um, Eleanor, though why she marries Edward Ferrers, I don't know. Uh, I never, he's never been my favourite of the of the um, heroes. Well, can we call him a hero? I don't know. Love I was, interest. I was playing a board game with my brother yesterday. I think it's called Table Manners. I can't remember. Um, it's about Jane Austen. It's basically... If anyone's played Settlers of Catan, it's basically that with Jane Austen, where you just have okay, to... Okay, sorry, what's this game? I think it's called Table Manners, but I could be wrong. I can't see it okay, right I'm now. Okay, I need to Google this immediately. It sounds like a, the most perfect game ever invented. Well, it's great fun. Is it, um, if, I, if you can't find it while Googling, I will get it and, and say it later. But um, in fact, I'm just going to do that now. One second. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I was right, ballpark, but wrong name. Polite Society is what it's called. Oh, right. Um, and you have character cards who are the, each of the characters from Austin are rated on uh, of different scores for heart and wit and beauty and wealth. And you have to like raise tokens to get them to come and sit at your dinner table. Um, Sounds like the best game ever. It's really fun. And then you can, you, the aim is basically to fill up your dinner table, but you can also play a version, or you, you also have missions. So you can either play Austin or non Austin. So you might have one where it says you have to get people who have at least two wit score or whatever. Things where you don't need to know about the books. But we always play the one where you do need to know about the books. Which, when we played yesterday, mine was I had to have characters who had never been married uh, by the end of the novel, and Colin had to have characters who were married by the end of the novel. And we realised there were all sorts of characters where we didn't know whether they ended the novel engaged or married. <laughs> so, crucial difference, whether they're just wow. looking forward to getting married or... Because <laughs> we know they're paired up, but has the, have the wedding bells rung? That so, sounds thrilling. Yeah. Um, and then there's things like you might have to get, you know, brother and sister pairs or people who are related or something. So, it's, yeah, it's good fun trying to test your Austin knowledge because they've got characters from, like, Lady Susan and things as well, where you think I can't really remember what was going on. But um, anyway, that it was sounds fun. like just the kind of geek fun that my department would love at school. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I hope you get hold of it. <laughs> I shall. 
I'm on Amazon right now. <laughs> <laughs> Other places to buy things are available. <laughs> yes, they are. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I also love reading about sort of anti-heroes or or just really ghastly people where you've got no sympathy or empathy for them. I mean, I love Ivy Conter Burnett novels and almost invariably everyone in them is pretty terrible. And certainly you're not, no one expects you to come with an emotional connection to those characters. No. Um, and I would worry for people who empathised with them. <laughs> I mean, again, elements of them, yes. But if you saw yourself completely in an Ivy Compton Burnett character, they probably need to go to hospital. Shame. <laughs> Um, and I think, you know, one of the novels that people always, well, certainly girls of, you know, or women who've been that age, um, would love and feel empathy with is, um, Cassandra in I Capture the Castle. Uh, I wonder if you can say that, yeah. <laughs> um, that's a classic one that I always think like, oh, yes, no, I know exactly how that feels. Um, I don't know whether there are as many, I mean, perhaps, I'm sure there must be, but I just don't read them, but, of of books that are more I mean are there comfort reading books written by men about men that men are supposed to relate to or not I mean I don't know well I mean my reading taste doesn't <laughs> very close to, to the average woman's and the average man's but I think broad brushstrokes it seems that the sorts of teen books for, for girls from that sort of period before teen books were really a thing, are quite you know introspective and, and they to, they want empathy, whereas the boys want to like biggles and you know, that sort of yeah. thing. Whereas more about daring do and um, I guess maybe <laughs> at that age boys are very keen to not have to empathise with something; they just want to <laughs> put all that to one side and pretend they're in a battle. Um, just to be very <laughs> stereotypical. That was no. I mean, I never read a biggles book in my life. I did read I Captured the Castle. Uh, um, do you think first person books? require empathy or is it just more more than third person is that or is it just irrelevant i think i think it can be easier to empathize with a first person character because you're getting more of a an insight into their reality because you're you're really accessing their thoughts and feelings a third person narration obviously you can still get the thoughts and feelings but it's not as as direct um, but then, you know, you can have odious first-person narrators that you're supposed to hate or mm. ones that are tricking you or ones you can't trust. Like, for example, I've just uh, finished studying The Great Gatsby with my sick formers and, um, you know, we all hate Nick as the as the narrator and everyone, we're all just, you know, it's all, all girls in the class, so we're all just like, oh, he's such a misogynist um, by the <laughs> end. And... Um, you know, that's a classic example of a first-person narrator that you're, I don't think you're expected to have any type of emotional connection to um, and certainly not empathise with unless, you know, you're not a particularly nice person, much like him, <laughs> um, up his own ass. Um, but it, <laughs> Gosh, got an explicit rating on this oh, episode, Rachel, my goodness. naughty, sorry. Yes. <laughs> um, <Epping> and blinding. <laughs> <laughs> Is this lockdown? Yeah. Does something to me. <laughs> Um, I'm trying to think of another example of a narrator that, and, and um, I really enjoy the narrator in um, Alias Grace. Hmm. Um, it's not a sort of, I'm from memory, gosh, it's been years since I've read it. I think it's maybe s switches between narrators or something. But I remember reading that and, and thinking, like, oh gosh, you know, she's so engaging this narrator and and yet i don't know whether she's actually done it or not and 
um, you kind of get to the end and you feel quite conflicted because you've, I certainly felt very connected to and empathetic towards her, but at the same time, I wasn't sure whether she'd actually murdered the people or not. Um, and there's actually the several novels recently with wonderful first person narrators that I have felt enormous amounts of sympathy for, but not empathy because I don't, I, they, their experience was too far away from mine. So, um, Every Human Heart by William Boyd. Hmm. Wonderful. And um, obviously, Hilary Mantle's Wolf Hall trilogy. I mean, absolutely sobbing at the end. <laughs> I knew he was going to die. It's history. But, you know, couldn't handle it. Um, and felt so sympathetic towards him. So sympathetic. In fact, I was laughing the other day. I read an interview with, um, oh, what's her name? She writes um, The Way I Live Now, Meg Rossoff. Hmm. And she was saying in the uh, saying what she'd been reading during lockdown, and she said the death of Thomas Cromwell has affected me more than the death of some of my own relatives. And I thought, oh, there's a woman after my own. Life. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of like um, narrators like Alice Grace, my cousin Rachel is a great one for yes. sort of reeling you in with sympathy, and then you're like, oh, should I be sympathetic? I don't know if I, sh- um, I won't spoil the ending of the book, but um, you're constantly wondering whether or not Philip has done the crime. Sorry, if Rachel has done the crime. Um, but and feeling some sympathy for Philip suspecting her, and then feeling sympathy for Rachel being suspected. Um, I don't know how much empathy comes into it with Philip, but, um, but and, no. and sort of Rachel's too enigmatic to particularly feel empathy for her. I think, but um, definitely one where sympathy goes is a, used as a weapon by Daphne du Maurier. I think. Um, and have you read uh, "Wish Her Safe at Home" by Stephen Benatar? Yes, I have. Yes. Uh, yeah, I yeah. Um, so for those who haven't, it's uh, a woman, a very unreliable narrator who um, she sort of moves to this this old house and she thinks she has all these connections to local people. She gets a painting that says one of her relatives and it's one of those things that reels you, again, reels you in. I think quite both maybe empathy mm-hmm. and sympathy because she, um, she has all feelings that a lot of people I think feel empathetic with feeling a bit lost feeling a bit lonely feeling trying to seek mm. attachments but then he's very clever with the narrative and how it um you gradually realize her reliability but you're never quite sure you feel quite wrong-footed a lot of the time um and I think if if you can have a wrong so if you're wrong-footed by a character who has been deeply sympathetic or empathetic it's it, wrong for you all the more because I mean if you're reading a murder mystery and you read it you discover that the narrator is not giving everything away it's more likely that you know you're just feeling a bit unsure where you were with the puzzle whereas yeah books like benatar's and i think like definitely to worry is um it is much more you like you feel your heart has been jolted when you suddenly realize you've been sympathizing with the wrong person or you've been uh, yeah yeah all that sort of thing yeah i always find it quite um powerful when you you're encouraged to empathize with someone who at the end turns out to be a murderer or something yes, like that yeah. you just think like gosh who am i um as i always think that at the end of the secret history when i think well you know i can understand why you killed him actually <laughs> um, then i just think oh gosh how does that who say am about I? yeah um and also i mean it's a it's a fairly easy trick for any em- empathy for any character is this as soon as they are a, a bibliophile at the beginning of a book. Or oh, a, yes, exactly. Yes. Any, obviously, anyone reading it probably is going to also be a bibliophile, so you, you suddenly yeah. got them on side. And, um, I mean, any, quite often, you know, uh, a heroine will talk about how much they love the Brontes or Austin or something. It's quite a good trick for you to be like, oh, okay, yeah, I like you. Yeah. <laughs> See? 
<laughs> We're on the same page. We're fine. Yeah. In fact, I think maybe the most empathy I've ever felt for a character was only in one one scene where uh, in the book Thief by Marcus Zusak, where I can't remember the heroine, the young girl's name, Liesel, is it? Maybe. I've, do you know what? I've never read. Oh, have you not? Ah, no. It's it's only okay in my mind. There's one brilliant scene where I think I'm going to call her Liesel for the sake of it. Of argument um <laughs> where she's she's uh she's poor and she doesn't have many books and she goes to visit um someone in the neighborhood who has an amazing library and just the way he describes her being overwhelmed by that library mm-hmm. um it's like wow okay yes i feel very much overwhelmed by the library at one remove <laughs> um so yes anything book related i mean like the penelope fitzgerald the bookshop anyone who is um love who loves literature who wants to make a trade with with books um it's probably going to get me on side and i pretty you know it covers a multitude of sins <laughs> in my mind <laughs> you can be a murderer but as long as you like jane austen we'll <laughs> yeah. <be good. laughs> yeah yeah um so if you had to choose one and you do that's why we're here yes um <laughs> sympathy or empathy Well, if I think of, of my absolute favourite books in the world that I read again and again and again, um, basically Jane Eyre and all of Jane Austen, um, it's I do so because I empathise with the characters. So I, I think I'm going to have to go with empathise. Empathy, sorry. Empathy. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think I so seldom find a character who I feel particularly, other than sort of moments or, or traits, empathy with, that is much more important for me to feel sympathy for a character, particularly if it's a character. I don't mind if we're not meant to, but if we are meant to, then it has to work. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I'm going to go sympathy. Okay. All right, so our middle section, um, another question from Sydney. You may remember in our yeah. last episode, we had the question from Sydney about historical novels yes. that was more aimed at you. And then she also wrote one that was more aimed at me, right. Which, uh, but we can obviously both answer it, which is um, what are our favourite Novels and non-fiction with theatrical settings. Theatrical settings? Yes. Right, okay. So set in a theatre or an acting company or that sort of thing. Which, as she knows, is one of my favourite things. Yes, well, no, you go ahead and start and I'll see what I can think sure. of. Sure. Yeah, so um, I think the ones... I, it's one of those things I really love. I've actually found relatively few that I really enjoy when, <laughs> um, or think I do, think do it really well. My favourite one, I've not actually read for years, but White Cargo by Felicity Kendall. Um, it's her autobiography, uh, and it's largely about being in an acting troupe in India, a Shakespeare acting troupe in India, which is where Brilliant. she grew up. So, um, yeah, so her, da- her dad, Jeffrey Kendall, was... Um, uh, Shakespearean actor as well and they had this troupe and she started appearing in, in plays as a baby and then that's where she learned her her craft as an actor um, and I've not read it for years as I say but I just love everything about reading about that theatrical troupe and and what she you know blossoming into into her different Shakespearean roles um, in fiction I really like the theatre scenes in The Town in Bloom by Dodie Smith um, other which again, someone who goes into repertory theatre and is, is a, it's lots about um, living in a boarding house and all that sort of thing, which is also what I love. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, great stuff. Theatre and Dodie Smith's autobiography or second volume of autobiography. Look back in. Anger. Uh, look back in yeah, love. Look back in love is the first one. I think it's hey, look right. back in astonishment or maybe look back hey, with. Right. Me. Oh no, they were with. She wrote four. 
I think it might oh, be. Right. Look, <laughs> I think it might be looked back with astonishment, or it might be looked back with mixed feelings. Anyway, one of them, whichever the second one is, she writes about her own experiences in a theatrical uh, or in repertory theatre. I'll do one more, and then I'll see if okay. you've got any more. Um, I really like uh, Naya Marsh's opening night, which is a murder mystery set around uh, again a group of. Uh, people putting on a play, lots of theatrical tensions, as well as obviously people being murdered. <laughs> mm. um, have you have you any suggestions? Yes, um, one of my um, favourite novels of the kind of late twentieth century is Wise Children by Angela Carter, mm, yes. um, which is it's not necessarily set in a theatre, but it's about two about twins who grew up um, being in the theatre, and it's. Yeah, it's wonderful. They actually did a play of it um, last couple of years ago. Um, Emma Rice, who was the um, very short-lived um, <laughs> yeah. creative person director, I don't know what her title was at the at the Globe before she got kicked out for being too radical, um, did a wonderful production of it. I want to read a novel about that. <laughs> oh yeah, so would I. I can imagine there's lots that went on behind the scenes. You can just imagine all these Shakespearean yeah. <laughs> How dare she? Um, and there is a novel. I'm just trying to think now that I've it's sort of going on in the back of my mind. The um, the theatre scenes in Mansfield Park are also very good. Of course, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, the play being Lover's Vows, based on a real play. Yeah, scandal. It's very scandalous and bringing about the downfall of um, <laughs> several, uh, several characters there. And um, the book I've just read, actually, The Sea Change by Elizabeth Jane Howard, is is about playwrights and um a girl who he hires initially as his secretary but then decides is going to be perfect for for the part mm. of his um of, of in his new play yes and i'm sure you can imagine what happens <laughs> next um and it's it's an interesting look actually at, at sort of behind the scenes you also got uh, another of the characters is his sort of stage manager and um sorts out all of the the boring stuff behind the scenes contracts and all that kind of thing so it's quite interesting look at mm. a world within the theatre there's probably many more that I've read but I can't think of any more off the top of my head I've just reminded me of At Freddy's by Penelope Fitzgerald which is at a children's acting school and that's brilliant oh, as well I'd like to read that actually it's and wonderful. what's that book we both read about an actor I don't know if it's about theatre um, oh gosh Molly Fox's Birthday Oh gosh, that was brilliant! Yes, oh, that is quite a lot about theatre because she's the um, it's an actor and a director, isn't it? And the yeah. main characters. What a wonderful book that was! A wonderful book. I must reread that actually. Yeah, we should do that sometime properly. Yeah. Um, so there you go, Sydney. There's a few suggestions for you. Um, as ever, if anyone would like us to do a question for them in the middle of recommendations or suggestions or any of that sort of thing, uh, tea or books at gmail dot com. Um, and in the final section, two books with similar titles but very different. Um, would you like to introduce us to Francis Bufford? Yes. Or Marin Ramsey, but since you didn't finish that one. No. <laughs> um, so Francis Bufford's book, The Child of Book Built, uh, is about it's a, it's a memoir of, of his of his childhood through um, the books that he read in different phases of his childhood, but it's also an analysis of children's fiction and the different elements um, that you find in children's fiction. So it's separated into three chapters and it looks at 
um the island the hole um and something else i can't remember um the the, wood, is it? yes the forest i think or the forest. wood yeah um which are used as kind of thematic ways of looking at the different phases you go through in in your childhood reading and where you move from one sort of realm into another and um it's quite interesting actually because he also focuses on how what boys want and what boys look for in fiction might be quite different to what girls look for at a similar age and he ties it in with um why he read and what he chose to read due to the circumstance of his family so he grew up with a sister who was terminally ill so um a lot of his reading he acknowledges in the book was to do with kind of escaping from the very real kind of trauma that was going on in his his day-to-day life so um yeah that's that's that yeah yeah um, Marilyn Robinson's When I Was a Child, I Read Books sounds like it might be a memoir of the books you read as a child, <laughs> but it's it absolutely <laughs> isn't. <laughs> um, I mean, what is it? It's a collection of <laughs> essays that are about theology and economy and politics, um, and I didn't really understand very many of them. Uh, I felt on slightly safer ground when she talked about theology, um, and indeed, at times, about her experience as a Christian. Um, I didn't really understand any of the other essays, so I don't really know what to say about them. No, um, I can't help you. Yeah. So um, there's, a, I don't know if you got this. There's a, I really enjoyed Wondrous Love. Um, I'm going to segue from summarizing to actually talking. Now. There's one about Wondrous Love, which is um, basically about God's love and her experience of it and how um, how vital it is to the history of Christianity and that sort of thing. There's love. She, she writes very well about Jesus. She, she writes very well about, um, I'll just quote a bit. Um, if we let these things distract us, we have lost the main point of the narrative, which is that God is, God is of a kind to love the world extravagantly, wondrously, and the world is of a kind to be worth, which is not to say worthy of, this pained and rapturous love. This is the essence of the story that forever eludes telling. It lives in the world, not as myth or history, but as a saturating light, a light so brilliant that it hides its source to borrow an image from another good old hymn. Which is rather lovely, but um, perhaps also gives you an insight to her sentences, which are seldom simple, uh, either in type of sentence or in what she's trying to say. Yes. Um, I mean, I found a lot of what she said. Um, I, I really enjoyed that essay as well. And a lot of the, I think there were two or three of the early earliest essays in the collection that were looking at um, Christianity and its place in the world and the way in which people think about it wrong, wrongly often, um, I found very powerful. And there were some sections in there that I, I was like, oh, you know, that's really that's really beautiful and you've summarised how I feel about that perfectly. Um, but then I think, I think for me perhaps the main problem with accessing a lot of the essays is not that they're difficult to read, it's just they're very American and they're very based around American politics and American historical figures and American ways of, of thinking. And um, I, I, fe- I feel this way often when I watch American sitcoms and comedies that are very political. I just don't get it. I think it's I'm not because I'm not saturated in that culture and I didn't grow up in that culture. I don't often understand some of the references and I don't understand why she perhaps feels as passionately about certain things as she does um because for me i don't get the significance of it so i think a lot of it was lost on me because of that um 
and I also do find that she's very um, theologically theoretical um, and she's known for her kind of, she's Calvinist and to be honest with you, it's not an area I've ever read much into. So I don't really understand the nuances of what it is that she's saying. Um, You know, as far as I'm concerned, I just love, I just love God. I love Jesus. Like that's it. Mm. Um, Mm. I don't know all the ins and outs of it. Um, And I just found it quite heavy. And I can see now someone actually gave me my copy and said I couldn't get on with this at all. You know, loves Marilyn Robinson as a novelist, but she was just like, I just didn't get any of it. And I thought, oh, you know, but I was like, well, what's there not to get? This is going to be lovely. It's all going to be about, you know, her childhood reading. Yeah. And, and I <laughs> Which do, I would love to read that. Book. Yeah. Yes. And I do think it was a bit disingenuous, actually, of I think it's Virago who's published that edition to have have chosen that as the title of the collection because I think a lot of people would have gone and, and bought that and picked it up thinking, oh, this is going to be Marilyn Robinson talking about books and reading. And actually there's one essay in the volume that does talk about that and even half, and it's only like two yeah. pages of the essay is even about yeah. it before she goes off on a tangent about something else, um, which was very disappointing actually. Um, though she did have interesting things to say. Um, in that essay and I, I found it really interesting actually she was talking about how in housekeeping her first novel which I didn't enjoy when I read it but I feel like I have to read it again at some point because I don't think I connected with it um, and she was saying about how she wanted to create this character who had grown up in a place where there was no exposure to, to books outside of the bible and outside of classics like you know the greek classics and she was like you know that that was basically what I grew up on that was all I had access to so she was talking about how she grew up in, I think she grew up in Idaho or Iowa or somewhere. No, she lives in Iowa now, but she grew up somewhere in the back of beyond anyway. Um, And she was talking about how good the education system was and how she was schooled in all of these classic texts and how, you know, that has completely shaped the way in which she views the world. And I thought that was a really interesting um commentary to make on the power of reading and you know how what you read as a child forms your view of the world and forms your vocabulary and forms how you um see narratives in the world around you and if you only grow up reading epic greek narratives you know you're going to see the world very differently to someone who grows up on a diet of famous five um which i think is the best link to yeah, it's Francis Furford. There's a line in that essay which I enjoy about like, how hard it is to con- convince anyone who grew up on the coast of America that there is sort of intellectual life in the middle yeah. of America. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's, again, whilst this book, Marilyn Robinson's, was not what I was expecting, I think Furford's also wasn't what I was expecting because yeah. I've read, I mean, I've read a lot of memoirs of people's reading, either as an adult or like Lucy Mangan's bookworm, which is, looks through her childhood of reading. And as you say, that he does talk about loving the Hobbit and all these sorts of things, but um, but it's much more theoretical. And I really enjoyed, particularly the early bits, reading about you know, Piaget's theories of child development in reading, etc. Because it's a world I know nothing about. I'm assuming, as a teacher, perhaps you have read much more about this sort of thing. Yes. Anyway, and I don't know how how up to date or how accurate what he wrote is, but. Um, I enjoyed when he was detailing different reading experiments. Mm. Um, and what I think I found, I struggled with the first 30 or so pages when I was like, well, this isn't a memoir of reading. Yes, <laughs> um, no, I did the same. Yeah. But once I got past that and to the sort of book he was trying to write, which is much more all encompassing with this sort of thread through it of what he read to link together his basically a, a 
more a more general history of children reading at those different periods of or those different ages then i did really really enjoy it and learn a lot um how did you feel yeah i mean i texted you didn't i ben, yeah. and i was like i can't get over this at all simon um and that was sort of the first introductory part of it and i just thought what is this you know this isn't this is not what i expected um and i was a bit cross about it actually because i thought you know this is another yeah. <laughs> example of someone promising something and it's not um but once i'd come come to a uh, understanding of what it was he was trying to do i thought oh, okay i'm going to change my my way of viewing this now and i've got to accept that this isn't going to be a lovely cozy memoir um but it's a more academic text in many ways actually yeah, yeah. at you know the history of children's literature and how children read and why children read and um how what children read affects the way that they view the world and actually i found it quite fascinating um in many ways thinking about you know the and the way that he drew together these themes and looked at you know when you're a child um initially you kind of enjoy this process of getting lost in this sort of dangerous place that's mm-hmm. not really, that's sort of a safe world of danger where you can enjoy the fact that the characters are in it you know are, are in some kind of terrible situation but you know ultimately they're going to be rescued and then how you move on to looking at books that are adventures that go on in the world outside of you and then you know the the growth of fantasy and kind of witches and wizards and the world like he talks about narnia and things like that mm-hmm. um and then gradually as you move towards uh, the end of childhood and i found it really interesting him talking about the point where he got to 12 and 13 and really struggling to find books that he could connect with because he'd grown out of those more childish books and he grew up in the I gathered in the sort of 70s and 80s Mm. um, which was obviously a different period of time in in children's literature I mean the the young adult literature scene has only really become a huge deal in maybe the last 15 or so years or 20 years maybe Mm. Um, so he was saying you know there was a real dearth of literature you went from children's books at the age of 11 to okay well now you've got to go off and read adult books and reading stuff that you pick up and don't really understand and um so I found that really interesting as well thinking about the transition between children's books and adult books um and yeah it gave me a lot to think about in terms of you know I always struggle myself with thinking you know when I have students who are quite who are very good readers and are quite mature but they're not that mature and it's like you know they get to 12 and they don't want to read um you know the children's books or young adult books they want to read like proper grown-up books they always say that you know i want to read something properly proper grown-up books <laughs> and and i always think well gosh you know i don't know what to give you because i'd love to give you not like Northside Abbey, for example, <laughs> yeah. but you're not going to find it funny and you won't get it. And it's, you know, you can give children these, these books, but the danger is always that they read it, they don't understand it, and then it puts them off. So, yeah, it's a real tricky stage. Um, and I think Yeah, and he doesn't really talk that much in detail about many books. He just writes yeah. really well about basically the Hobbit, the Narn- Chronicles of Narnia, and Laura Ingalls Wilder's um, yeah. Little House on the Prairie that's series. That's, he goes um, there. that's my dream. Yeah, I mean, of those three, I've only read the Narnia series, so I got, I think, the most out of what he wrote there. Mm-hmm. But, um, but he wrote really interestingly about all of them. And it, yeah, he's really good at sort of deconstructing 
why they appealed to children at that developmental stage as yeah. well as why he personally liked them. And then, particularly with Laura Ingalls Wilder, like how he ref- looks back on, on that now. Yeah. Um, and I think, yeah, he manages, manages to weave those... Because you say it's quite academic. It's not. It's certainly not inaccessible. It's definitely written no, for right, the, the average reader. Uh, and I think he manages to weave together the personal and the theoretical um yeah, he does. Really, really well. Yeah, and I think arguably better than Robinson does. <laughs> um, yes, no, I would agree. Yeah. I think the 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 difficulty of writing nonfiction is making it educational but also accessible. And I think Marilyn Robinson's stuff is so dense, it is mm-hmm. quite inaccessible to the average reader who is not schooled in Calvinist, the- you know, theology or yeah. is up to date yeah. with austerity the economics or whatever yes. yeah yeah i'm like economics like gosh i don't <laughs> know where to begin with that so it's made me feel a bit stupid whereas this one i was loving it because so much of what he said was just i just had moments where i thought oh gosh do you know what that's so true like when he was talking about um the town and he was talking about um there's a, a book um in the little house on the prairie series where they moved to town a little town on the prairie it's called um, and he was saying how the only town he knew was the one closest to him. So in his head, he mm. would transpose that town into every novel that had a town. And um, I remember him then saying he was really disappointed and quite shocked when he saw the real town um, of Desmet that um, where it's set. And it's like, this isn't what I imagined. And this is really messing with my... perception of things because children can only imagine what they've seen you know you can't expect children to be able to imagine the difference for for example he didn't really understand the difference between america and and britain he didn't understand that the architecture would look different and things like that um and i i loved that exploration of of that how that feels to be a child and to have such a limited frame of reference for things and how that impacts on your imagination yeah, yeah. And to go back to sort of accessibility with Robinson you just mentioned, I found that often her essays were sort of rebuttals of people I'd never heard of. Mm. So she'd be going through like, this is why this argument is wrong. It's like, well, I've, de- I've never heard that argument. I, didn't, I feel like it's a sort of volume that if she weren't a popular novelist, and popular in the sense of widely read rather than you know, mm. poor, but um, <laughs> the, <laughs> then no, nobody would, this, this would have been published with, you know, 300 copies or something in an academic library Um, and the reason it's been marketed as being for for this is because people want to read more books by Marilyn Robinson but I imagine quite a lot of people probably only got to page 20 or something (laughs) Um, and I've got I mean I bought other volumes of essays and then keeping this one because it's signed by her because I went to hear her talk about it and got it there but I'm but yeah she's it's it's I mean her novels aren't you know quick reading they're not sort of lightly written but it is strange to me that she can make novels that really take you into the depth of a person um, and illuminate it. And whereas this is very, <laughs> it's probably illuminating if you are an, if you're very well versed in these areas. But I've I've come out not feeling like I've learned anything because I just found it impenetrable for the most part. Yes, and I, I think that's disappointing because she a lot of what she has to say is very profound and meaningful and and i'm 
you know, it's difficult to find a modern novelist who's widely respected who also writes very well about Christianity. Christianity mm, is, mm. has been pushed to the edge of academia, it's been pushed to the edge of cultural cultural life, um, and it's very much, you know, looked down upon and sneered at. Um, and to have somebody write beautiful, literary, wonderful books that reveal what it is to have a faith and what God's relationship is with humans and to do it so well. I mean, the Gilead trilogy seemed to be mm. whatever the word is before. Quadra- <laughs> qu- quadrology? I don't know. Maybe, yeah, maybe. Know, someone please tell us. Um, <laughs> is just, you know, it's so wonderful. And I thought, you know, if these essays were more accessible, this could have, have been a really powerful tool to help people think about Christianity in a different way. But, I mean, I, I wonder why they're not, because she could definitely, she must be able to write those if she wants. So she must have decided to write this sort of scholarly essay. But it's also, I mean, it's also like there's no footnotes or anything. It's not, right. it wouldn't be acceptable in a, you know, a scholarly periodical like, in this form. So no, I'm, I'm not just, quite sure who she was yeah. intending them for. They just sort of feel a bit like rants at a academic dinner party. Yeah. <laughs> and so, I mean, I'd love to read one, that, a, a book that, was about her faith and you know enough of what how she's arrived at that faith theologically but it doesn't require this level of um, yeah. occasionally nitpicking and occasionally just yeah i mean i don't know it was it was frustrating um so yes both these books were not what i expected them to be <laughs> but one turned out rather better although having said that there's a bit of francis buffett's that i could have done without which was the the brief and sudden and unexpected turn to pornography at the end. Yes. No, I was a bit like, oh, okay. Yeah. Um, I didn't realise we were going there at the end. Yes. Um, yeah, I could have done without that as well. But interestingly, he, he is also a Christian and he talks about um, Christianity in, in his book and the Christian element of Narnia and everything. Um, so that's an interesting connection, another connection between the two of them. Um but it's, yeah, I don't think either of them would necessarily be books I'd go back to. Yeah, I can see myself flicking through, particularly the early bits, because I found the stuff on child reading development really interesting. And I'm sure there's many other places I could find um, that sort of information. But um, yeah, as you mentioned really early on, his, his sister is this terminal diagnosis. And he writes, I think he wrote really well about her. I'd love to read mm. more about his family. Yeah, they sound fleeting. fascinating, actually. Really fascinating. Uh, and went through a lot. Yeah. Um, yeah. But that was obviously not the book he was wanting to write. And I, I mean, this came out in 2003, something like that. So it was it was before the vogue for lots of reading memoirs that have come out, particularly in the last sort of five years. Yeah, he was and sort it, of before the curve there, really. Yeah, and it feels a bit like he's trying to write the reading memoir, like the, mm. the one. And I think now you wouldn't be able to do one that was this sort of overarching, maybe. Um Everyone's expected to find their particular niche in a, in a market. Um, yeah. But he's, I mean, he's not that old, is he? He's only, so he was 34 when this was published, I think. So. Yeah, and I was. I, 50s. I made, I started reading it and I thought, oh, gosh, I know this name. And I thought, oh, he wrote Golden Hill. Yes, which I hated. <laughs> <laughs> which I haven't read. So, um, but I, I kept meaning to. Yeah, I mean, obviously, a historical novel set in New York isn't going to be my thing. But. No. My book group did it. <laughs> um, I definitely referred this to that. Um, it's probably relatively clear which one we're going to choose from this, but just to <laughs> confirm, <laughs> I will be Q 
keeping Mr. Spafford. Yeah, I mean, likewise, but I, I won't, I'm not actually keeping it. I've, it's gone in the charity bag. Because oh. <laughs> I know I won't read it again. It's not something that is, it's not what I wanted. Um, if you see what I mean. I know that's very, <laughs> like, it's not what I wanted, so I'm giving it away. But, um, it, <laughs> We're at that stage of development where you just throw it out the pram. Yeah. <laughs> Chuck it. Um, Yes, it's a shame that after 85 episodes, 86 episodes, we finally do Marilyn Robinson and then we don't like it very much. But I think at some point we'll have to do the novels. Maybe around the time Jack novels comes out, we can look back at the worth it, everyone. Yeah. <laughs> um, for some reason, I kept thinking Francis Bufford was called Francis Stafford. Is that a person? Did, is Francis Stafford a biographer, maybe? I don't know. Um, I could just look it up. In the next episode, we'll be doing... Um, a novel that Rachel has mentioned recently uh, in a previous episode, um, Jane and Mary Findlater? Findlater? Oh, I forgot we were doing this. Yes, Crossriggs, yeah. Chris Crossriggs. I'm not sure how to pronounce her surname. Crossriggs by uh, by two sisters um, with <laughs> J- <laughs> Jane Austen's Emma. No. Oh, I'm going to reread it. That's going to be my fun. Well, maybe I'll reread it. I've not read it since I was 17. Simon. So. <laughs> I did love the film. I just love it so much. <laughs> if it was, if oh. it were a person, I'd just hug it. <laughs> Can you guess what Rachel will pick in the next episode <laughs> in advance? Um, I mean, it's always unfair putting anyone against Austin, isn't it? But hopefully, it will be a fun yeah. discussion nonetheless. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. All the books and authors mentioned in this episode are at stuckinabook.com. You can find Rachel at booksnob.wordpress.com. Um, I always forget to do this bit. Oh, yeah, I was going to say, this sounds very professional, Simon. Hey, isn't it? Again, touch at tea or books at gmr.com. And we hope you are staying safe, keeping happy, keeping well. Yeah, look after yourselves, everyone, and see you soon. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. Bye.